and we called the series Meant for More because we believe that God has more in store for the city of Cleveland. God has more in store for us as individuals and, and us as families. And He wants us to get all, all that He has for us. And we were talking about identity and we mentioned how, last week we mentioned how difficult that is in a world that's inundated with uh, making us forget who we are and what we don't have. And, and we talked about the marketing folks who sit in back rooms and they, they, um, they come up with the next best uh, hot thing. And what do they call it? They call it a, a brand and we use farming terminology. What do they want to do with that brand? They want to... S- stick it on you and make you forget who you are. And so this is really a call back to remembering who we are and what we carry in Christ. And it's not just to um, simply stay in the incomplete story, which for the better part of the Western evangelical church stays in. You know, it would be incomplete for me to say that God sent Jesus to this earth uh, just to give me a, a testimony. You know, if that was my story, that would be an incomplete story. But rather, we're not simply saved from something, but we're saved for something. And so we're getting at how identity, who we are in Christ, ties in with transformational community. That we're not just saved from something, but that Jesus wants to place us on mission. And we talked about that in context of Paul's name change, how Saul of Tarsus did not receive his new name at the point of salvation. You see, religion's always happy with, uh, religion's happy with a name change at conversion, at salvation, but God's only happy when we engage in mission. And so Paul gets his new name, not when he, he's blinded by Jesus on the road to Damascus, but Paul receives his new name the minute he engages in mission. And that's what we want to talk about further today. And we're going to stay in Ephesians, and I figure we just pick up where we left off. So we're going to be in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, if you want to turn or, or swipe there with me. And on a side note, we love uh, Bible reading uh, here at Vineyard Cleveland, and we have a Bible for you. They're on either side of the stage, or you can go to the App Store and download tons of Bible apps uh, online. One that I like in particular is called The Bible in One Year. It's a red little icon for the app, and it's written by Nikki Gumbel. Nikki Gumbel is the founder, of course, of the Alpha Movement, and, which we host here at, at our church every fall. And Nikki Gumbel and his wife Pippa combined to write these awesome little 10-minute devotionals for a daily Bible reading plan throughout the year. And if you've never, um, uh, or maybe, maybe you're like me and you struggle with Bible reading, and that's tough for you to keep like a daily Bible reading plan throughout the year, this is a great app that's helped me a lot stay on track. Um, just really practical, really great app. And so it's called The Bible in One Year. I really encourage uh, you to download it and, um, and check it out. So, okay, so we're going to be in Ephesians, and we're going to read Ephesians 1, 2 through verse 6 together. And Paul writes this, Grace and peace to you, 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Let's stop. Okay, where's Ben? Or maybe Sarah can help me. Just keep me on, keep me on target. The time change. I want to get you out of here at a good time. So let me know when I'm done. Just pull the big hook out and say, okay, and I'll, you know, scurry off stage. You're going to, you're, okay, you're going to, okay. So I've got two keeping me accountable. That's good. Okay, um, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Paul begins the letter with grace and peace. And the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, are a people uh, and a church who need more grace. They're a people, if we were to do some more digging into the context of how this group of people found themselves at this particular point in time, um, they've forgotten who they are, essentially. And Paul, right off the bat, as he's uh, consistently doing throughout his epistles, is saying, right off the top, grace and peace. And typically, Paul focuses on the word grace, but here he adds the word peace, and this is important. Last week, we said sometimes we just skip over these uh, greetings to the, the churches, whether it's in Galatia or Ephesus or wherever, and we're like, oh, it's just like, dear people, hey, how's it going? But there are nuggets in here for us to gather about what Paul is trying to communicate or what God is trying to communicate to us as his, his church today. And it's very interesting that Paul adds the word peace here, grace and peace. And what Paul is trying to say here is that he, the Father wants us to experience more grace. He wants us to experience grace. He wants to give us all that he has for us. There's a song that Jewish families sing around the time of Passover. And the song is called Dayenu. And the song talks about, about, it basically means it would have been sufficient. It would have been sufficient, God, if you would have, ha- have freed us from slavery from the Egyptians. Dayenu. It would have been sufficient, but you, you opened up the Red Sea for us to part through, for us to walk through. It would have been sufficient. And the song goes on to recount the history of the Jews through this song, Dayenu. Now what Paul is saying here by putting grace and peace together is that he's saying he wants us to experience all that he has for us. It would have been sufficient if Christ would come down and forgive your sins to make all things new. Dayenu. But he not only died for our sins at the cross, he made us sons and daughters of God. It would have been sufficient if Christ would have made us sons and daughters of God to be called children of God, Dayenu. But he gave us the Holy Spirit. 
to affect change in our lives, the, the power source to affect change. And this is what Paul is saying, grace and peace together. Grace and peace together. Essentially, he wants to, he not just wants to, longs to multiply grace in our lives. Longs to do it. He wants fullness. He wants us to enter into a sense of fullness for the here and the now. No longer impoverished by our present and no longer alienated from our future. So the message God is communicating through sticking the words grace and peace together is nothing missing, nothing broken. Nothing missing, nothing broken. When God looks at your life, and I'm just saying what the book says, y'all. He sees through the lens of favor, not failure. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Have you ever looked around and had the feeling that you were made for more. You look around, all you see is brokenness, either socially or relationally in your personal lives. Paul has a proclamation to make. Nothing missing, nothing broken. By placing these two words together, grace and peace, Paul is communicating to our identity that grace is only as good as the peace you experience in your life and relationships. What's so amazing about grace if you're not experiencing peace in your relationships? That's really good. Let's say that one again. Paul is communicating to our identity that grace is only as good only as good as the peace that you experience in your relationships. And then he goes on, and he identifies the source of this grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from who? God, our Father. Ooh, here we go. This is really good. And this is where we're going to park for the majority of this morning. You see, Paul grew up like we said last week, Saul of Tarsus. And Paul describes himself in the epistles as a Pharisee of Pharisees. To the letter, he observed the law. His dad was a Pharisee. His dad's dad was probably a Pharisee. Paul was so zealous for the law of God that he murdered Christians who spoke against the law. This dude is a Pharisee to the T. So he knew religion, is my point. He knew what religion was. And he would have been taught all through his upbringing. And all he saw was a strict, punitive view of who God was. So for Paul to write, grace and peace to you from God our Father, you see, this is a monumental shift. Jesus, in the New Testament, Jesus 
refers to God as the Father 175 times. Why did Jesus come? Jesus, Jesus didn't come to die on the cross for your personal sin, per se. Jesus said he came to reveal who? The Father. God is Father. Jesus came to reveal something that was completely unprecedented on the face of the earth. That it's not just some, you know, magnetic energy out there like the force from Star Wars that rules over our lives in some vague, you know, intangible way. But that God is Father. That Jesus came to reveal the Father is something never before seen on the face of the earth. You see, religion, this is where religion is so good. Religion tries to obscure the face of the Father because religion knows that once people get a taste of who God really is, religion loses every time. Religion always obscures the face of the Father. Religion always shrouds the Father's face in laws and rules to be kept. But Jesus says, I've come to reveal the Father. The Father's sort of like a bad poker player. He's like, oh, I'm showing you my hands again. <laughs> Why does he do this? Why does the Father show us his cards so easily? Why is the Father like a bad poker player? Because I think he knows. I think he knows that we'll come. That's, that's how we come after him. That's how we chase after him. Oh, showing you my cards again. Love you. Oh, not again. Full house. <laughs> you know, Paul is saying, I'm no longer trying to make my mark on the world. Now I have a father who loves me. That's the truth, that God celebrates you today. He's not focused on your failure. He's focused on your favor. God gets happy when you get happy. So how can we experience God this morning through the person of Jesus who reveals what our Father's hands are like? Oh, this just blew my heart up this week. There's a really amazing book. It's called, I've read it and reread it over the years, and you could just get stuck in it for months on end. It's written by a guy named Henry Nouwen, and the book is called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And listen to what Henry Nouwen says about the father's hands. There's this painting. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. It's, it's painted by the master, Rembrandt. And what Nouwen did was he went away and he, he sat at the hermitage where Rembrandt painted The Return of the Prodigal Son and he just meditated on the painting and the parable of the prodigal son. And he said he was always drawn to the hands that are like cradling the, the son. You know, the son's feet are all dirty and worn out from the journey and he's the father's embracing him and and now one says I was always drawn to the hands and he was wondering why that was and he writes this that these are the father's hands these are the hands that have held you from the hour of your conception they welcomed you at your birth the father's hands fed you and kept you warm 
They protected you in times of danger and consoled you in times of grief. They've waved goodbye to you and have always welcomed you back. Those are, those are God's hands. The Word says that we're hidden safely in His hands. That we're engraved in the palm of His hands. He knows us. The Scriptures say that before we were even born, He knit us together in our mama's belly. I was talking to a, a friend of mine this morning. Uh, another friend of ours knitted me a wool hat to keep my bald head warm. And just this week, wearing that hat and thinking about, he knew you. You know, he, he knows every single, you're not just a collection of cells clumped together to live out your days and then pass away into ashes. He knows you. He formed you in your mother's womb, knitting you together, stitch by stitch, to create something beautiful. He knows you. He knit you together with a first, kind, first love kind of love and an unlimited and unconditional love. This is who He is. This is who God is. He's Father. And as I was uh, thinking about it this week, I felt like, man, this would be a perfect time for Finding Nemo theology. So let's check out this clip. This is from Finding Nemo. There's this lucky fin. You remember that? We got it? There we go. How good, how good that we're like Nemo and we didn't know how, we didn't know how vast or deep the ocean of loneliness was when we set out to touch the, the boat. <laughs> but that our Father doesn't just stay back on the coral reef. He comes looking for us. And a lot of times I find myself, 
you know, struggling to like, how can I, how can I find God? How can I love God? How can I serve God more? And you know, a lot of the times, heaven's response is different. It's not that I find, like I try harder to find God. God is trying harder to find you than you're trying to find Him. He's not content to stay at the coral reef, but He searches and searches and loves and loves wave after wave. That's who the Father is. If God is anything, He's Father. And then Paul says, praise be, praise be to to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be. You know, something of praise rises up, begins to rise up in us when we receive a revelation that God is Father. Something of praise rises up. When we get a revelation that God is our Father, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter now if he likes me or she likes me or he doesn't like me and she doesn't like me. My my Father loves me. I'm loved with an everlasting kind of love. It doesn't matter what circumstance you find yourself in. The book says that I'm loved with an everlasting love. The Father smiles on my life. And to to borrow a line from my friends on the south side of Chicago at Faith Covenant Church of God on the 110 block, what are you waiting on before you get your praise on? What are you waiting on before you get your praise on? Are you waiting for your singleness to change, your finances to change, your circumstances to change? What's it going to take for you to get your praise on now? You see, we all want the mountaintop experience, but we fail to realize this, the way to get to the mountaintop is by praising him in the valley. In the middle of the struggle is where we come alive. It's who we become in the middle of struggle. That determines our inheritance. It's who we're becoming. What are you waiting on to get your praise on? (laughs) Why not praise now? Praise now in the middle of it. It's easy. It's easy to praise when you're on the mountaintop, when you can see 50,000 yards in front of you. It's in the valley of the shadow that God's concerned about. That's where he shapes you into a worshiper. Praise be. Praise be. And and coincidentally, that's, that's where God destroys your enemies too. Doesn't he doesn't David say in the Psalms that you prepare a table in the presence, in the presence of my enemies? You prepare a table. That table is praise. God silences the enemy through our praise. He goes on to say every spiritual blessing. He says every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. This is where we get in trouble. How am I doing, Ben? How many? Seven. 
Sarah, how many more? <laughs> Awkward. Um, okay, if someone gives you everything, how much do they have left to give you? If, if someone, if the person who owns everything gives you that, how much is left to give? It's not a trick question. You will get no trick questions from the stage. I promise you that. Have everything. If you have everything, how much is left to receive? How much more do you have to get? If you have everything, that means what Paul is saying, that you, you've been given every spiritual blessing, is that all you need, all you could ever imagine, and beyond that, is already in your life, for your life, specifically tailored to who you are in Jesus, every spiritual blessing. And religious people, they seize on that. They seize on, oh, see, it says spiritual. And because it says spiritual, that means you don't get it till you die. Well, that's a real bummer of a birthmark, isn't it? (laughs) If you have to die, if you have to wait to die to get it all, really, that would suck. A lot of the things that you're praying for today, God's already answered, but because you can't see it, it's like this young couple who uh, left their farm during the gold rush in California, and they went to go strike it rich. They sold their farm, and they go, and they mine, and work their tails off, and they come up empty-handed after like a year and a half, and they give up. They say, we quit. We're done. And they're exhausted and they're discouraged and they're disappointed. All of those things. And they come back to their farm that they've sold only to discover that the people who bought the farm, that's a bad, the people who occupied the land now had discovered the second largest gold deposit in the U.S. underneath of the property of the farm. Every spiritual blessing so the, the message is that, is that you can call off the search. You can call off the search. What does every heart want to be when they grow up? What do you want to be when you grow up? The answer is that every human heart wants to be loved. Every human heart wants to be adored, wants to be cherished, wants to be treasured. All spiritual blessings. The word spiritual doesn't mean intangible or invisible. What it means is it's by the Spirit. It's by the Holy Spirit that it comes. He's talking, Paul's talking about glorious fullness now. Heavenly realms. Used to mean it was out there, but one from out there came here. You have all that you need. You can call off the search. It means that what God is giving is nearer than what's missing. It means that transformation is nearer than temptation because of Christ. It means that righteousness is closer than discouragement. 
When you became a believer, you didn't reach up to heaven to make your life better. God reached down. The way in is the way on every spiritual blessing. Which is easier, to forgive your sins or clean up your finances? To clean up your sins or to heal a broken body? Do you think that God would go through all the trouble of forgiveness, freedom from sin, all of that, just to leave the rest out until you get to heaven? Are we saying in that that God really gives his best gifts first and his worst gifts last? Come on, that's good news. It's the glorious transaction that God took his son and through him blessed us. All of the shame that we experience, all of the dishonor, all of the insult, all of the disgrace, he took that sin in the curse and he put it all on Jesus and then he nailed it to the cross. And that's where we like to stop. But that's not where God stops because God is Father. He not only takes all of the sin, all of the shame, the dishonor, the discouragement, the mistaken identity, puts it all on Jesus and nails it to the cross. He takes everything that was in Jesus, all of the freedom, all of the sonship, all of the dignity, all of the peace, all of the love. He takes all of that that was in the person of Jesus and he places it all on you. That's who you really are. Every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing, are you the righteousness of God? Yes, you are. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul writes when he says you become friends with God. Eugene Peterson writes in the message, he's already a you ask, in Christ, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so that we could be put right with God. The only way we could be put right with God is if Jesus put everything that was right with him on us. But you see, some folks would rather than receive it. But our dad loves to give us stuff. He loves to give us stuff. We said last week, and we'll say this in closing, that um, the Hebrew translation in Zephaniah, it's one of my most favorite verses. I love it. It's that God takes great delight in you. He rejoices over you with singing. And we say, oh, well, that's great. God takes great delight in me. No, you don't understand, Eben. That word Taking delight, taking delight in you, it means that he, he's so excited to be with you that he's doing backflips. He's like, the father is like that annoying friend you see in public who's, who's running down the street. Do you have friends like this? I don't have many like this, but what was that? No, no, I have you people. Uh, he, he, the father's like that annoying friend who you see in public and they're running down the street. Well, it's good to see you. I, I was looking forward all week to see you. I've been thinking about you. I'm so glad that you're You're like, not in public. Stop. <laughs> I'm not that big a deal, really. <gasps> but how often do we, in the name of humility, ha, <laughs> How often in the name of humility do we push aside how God really views us? 
He's like that. He's so excited. He can't wait to be with you. Ah, ah. And he did. He showed it, didn't he? When Jesus was baptized. He's like, whoa, they're going to love this. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. And John says, I can't do it. I can't baptize. And Jesus says, you got to do it. You got to do it. I've got a father in heaven who's waiting to reveal himself. And then Jesus goes under the baptismal waters. And what happens? He comes up and the dove descends on him. And then the father says, this is it. This is it. This is it. Ah, ha, I'm here. This is my son. Here he is. I'm not trying to place a caricature, a funny caricature of God. This is really what's happening in the cosmos and on earth. He's so excited to reveal Jesus as his son, and Jesus is just as pleased to do it in return. This is who God really is. He's Father. It's a game changer, y'all. To know that God is Father, Jesus is perfect theology. Perfect theology. All of the fullness of the Father in Him. This wasn't really on the menu. I know, we gotta go. I know it. I'm so excited. Turn to Psalms. Look at this is who this is who he is. Psalm 67, 1 and 2. May, may God be gracious to us. And bless us and make his face shine upon us. Why? That your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. When a baby is born, there have been studies done that within the first hours and days of your birth and mine and every single baby that's ever been born, There's work that's being solidified for that baby's lifetime. Specifically the joy center in the brain. And it comes through the connection, you know, all of the little words that don't make sense. The and the wrinkles in the face solidify this connection. How does it come? Through this, this staring I went over to the, I went over to John and Hannah, and I was like, oh, Delilah's up. Normally she's sleeping when I come to say hi, and she, there she is. And I'm like, you don't know who I am. You don't have, but you sure, he, look it, she sure knows who John is. Look it. She knows that face. And that's the way we are with the Father. May, and this, this is what it means. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And in the name of humility, we're like, ah, you know, a blessing would be nice here and there. No, as the church, we're commanded to pray that God would bless us. Why? Because when he blesses us, his face shines all over us. We can't help it. When Moses, when Moses goes, uh, when Moses says, God, show me your glory, what does God do? He he says, first, you're going to need to hide in that cleft. You're going to need to turn away. Then I'm going to flash before you, literally. Shows him, all Moses gets to see is the hindquarters. You remember? And what does God say? He says, at that point, I'll pass before you, and I'll show you my goodness. 
Moses says, show me your glory. The Father says, I'll show you my goodness. As the church, we're called to ask for the blessing of God on our lives because it's not the glory that's going to bring people throughout the earth into salvation. It's His goodness. It's that the Father is good. It's as we sing, we serve a good, good Father. That's who you are. That's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. That's our identity in Jesus, that we have a good Father. And just as Jesus reveals the Father through himself, we're called to be like Jesus. There can only be one Jesus. Can't be like him, can we? His mission was specific. And the mission that we're called to is the same ministry that Jesus was called to, to reveal the Father. Reveal the Father. Reveal the Father. Picking up the phones at work, reveal the Father. Doing some plumbing, reveal the Father. Working with people, reveal the Father. Reveal the Father, reveal the Father, reveal the Father. Ugh. Okay. Why don't you join me in standing?